This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. Typically, I record conversations with the president at the CBA podcasting studio in Ottawa. During the COVID-19 pandemic crises, I'm recording podcast episodes from my home in Toronto. As a result, the sound quality might not be as clear as when I record in the studio. I hope you enjoy listening to the podcast. Stay safe. Hello, my name is Vivian Salmon. Welcome to Conversations with the President. It's been said that it takes a village to raise a lawyer. The legal profession is perhaps unique in that newcomers are encouraged to seek out veterans as teachers and advisors, and veterans are encouraged to take on that role. Over the course of a career, a lawyer can seek out a variety of mentors to provide a number of services, teacher, coach, advisor, and confidant. And mentors are just the beginning of the story. It's becoming clear that even more than mentors, young lawyers, particularly those from equity-seeking groups, need sponsors. People in the upper tier of the firm who can make sure their work will get noticed, that they get assigned to important files, and their name will rise to the top when it comes time to choose new partners. My guest today is Ruth Goba. Ruth is a human rights lawyer and the executive director of the Black Legal Action Center, which was established in 2018 with a mandate to fight anti-Black racism in Ontario. She graduated from Osgoode Hall in 2000 and looked for work in international law after failing to land an articling position. She was called to the bar in 2002. Welcome to the podcast, Ruth. Thank you so much for inviting me to speak with you. We're recording this podcast in the summer of 2020 during what feels like a very unsettled time. While we're still social distancing due to the COVID-19 pandemic, the killing of George Floyd has sparked a new generation of activism, protesters taking to the street across the world to fight for racial equality. So let me start by asking you, Ruth, how are you doing? Uh, I am okay. I am extremely busy. As you know, I work, I'm the executive director of the Black Legal Action Center, and uh, the impact of both COVID-19 on the Black community and, of course, the protests around police brutality have had a significant impact on Black um, and on the Black community. So we are um, extremely busy. I can imagine. Take me back to the debut of your legal career. You didn't land an articling position after law school. As a result, you took a job with the NGO in New Delhi. And from there, you've carved out a very interesting career in human rights and social justice. Had you been planning to work in that field from the start? Uh, when I went to law school, it was because I wanted to work in social justice. And uh, throughout law school, I struggled, uh, to be frank. And like everyone else, uh, got you know, wrapped up in the articling process and, you know, looking for jobs that would make you successful on Bay Street. And I didn't get an articling position. I, I think when I didn't get the articling position, I was so distressed. What it forced me to do was kind of reevaluate the reasons that I went to law school in the first place. And the reasons that I went were to work in social justice and work on issues of human rights. And so I made a decision at that point that I would only apply for jobs that I genuinely was passionate about and interested in. And that's what I did. And I think it turned out at the time, I thought not getting an articling position was, for me, it was devastating. 
but it turned out probably to be the best thing that happened to me with respect to law school. Yeah, it always seems like that, that we don't know the future, but somehow it, it knows what's best for us in some ways. So as a Black woman whose life experiences crosses at the intersectionality of race and gender, did you find it difficult to find mentors when you returned to Canada? I did. I mean, my journey in law has been a little bit unusual. I came back to Canada. I didn't really find mentors at that time. I looked up to people from afar but in law school, I was a little bit isolated. And subsequent to law school, I was as well. And so I looked up to people from afar, I think, but I didn't really have connections to people in my community, certainly not in law, right? I had connections elsewhere, but I didn't have connections in law to other women in, in the Black community that I went to for advice or mentorship. How did you reestablish your career then? Because you talked about things, experiences of isolation in law school, when you went abroad, when you came back. How did you then overcome these experiences of isolation and reestablish your career in Canada? I went to India to work. It ended up being international articles. And I had a phenomenal experience and phenomenal, made phenomenal contacts, actually. I made contacts through the... NGO that I was working with. My boss was appointed special rapporteur on the right to adequate housing for the United Nations a week before I arrived. So I got to travel to Kenya and to Geneva and met people throughout those travels and throughout that work that worked in Canada. So when I came back to Canada, I finished my articles uh, at, a, at a community legal aid clinic called Arch Disability Law Centre, which is a specialty legal aid clinic that works on issues of disability. Um, but then I went straight to an international, a domestic and international human rights organization called the Centre for Equality, Rights and Accommodation. And I had met the executive director and actually the women's program manager in Geneva, Switzerland. I got a job offer from them. And so I started working at CIRA and that's really where I started my domestic uh, human rights work. So that sounds really ser serendipitous to some respects, but it also sounds like you were very methodical about your career choices and saying no to what to some people is a very traditional carved path. And within that, did you feel that race impacted your career or race impacted your ability to get mentorship and how you got a mentor? Is that something that you felt was implicit there or explicit? Or is it something that you felt you had to overcome to get where you are now? I feel like it's something I had to overcome, to be honest. I would like to be able to say that I made very conscious decisions. I think the first decision around my articling wasn't mine. The first decision was that I did not get an articling position. And looking back, given how I was feeling at that time and my confidence level, you know, I'm not surprised actually that I didn't get an articling position. I've learned a lot now. And for younger people, uh, younger Black women in particular who are looking for jobs, I speak with people who either, you know, who are looking for articling positions. And we talk a lot about how to approach it, what to do, what it means if you don't get something, what to do better the next time, because I've learned that over the years. I think after I didn't get the job, I then made very conscious decisions. 
So while I'd like to take credit and say I had the foresight to say, you know, I'm I'm just going to do what I want to do, there was an intervening factor, which at the time I really viewed as a failure that caused me to make the choices that I made, but it ended up being a good thing. And let's talk a little bit more about mentorship. Do you need a mentor to look like you? How could how can mentorship be used to break down systemic racism that racialized lawyers face in their career, which holds them back from achieving their true potential? Well, I mean, I can say that there are certainly um, some Black women lawyers in the province that I uh, look to and that I admire and that I consider mentors. But I will also say that a lot of the people who have supported me in my career have not been black and they have they have seen i think in me something that they want to you know that they want to support and so i'm grateful for all of the support that i've received and all of the guidance and all of the encouragement yeah i th- i think it's important um for people to realize that people are not necessarily looking for mentors like them all the time. It's something that can play a role, but people really need allyship and sharing power and a true aiming for a true equal society. There's a lot of talk about mentors. Um, it's one side of the coin, particularly for women and racialized um, associates and young lawyers. Many people don't normally see reflections of themselves in the C-suite. Part of the equation, I think, for breaking the glass ceiling seems to be sponsorship. How important is sponsorship in opening up opportunities for young lawyers and those who belong to underrepresented communities? When you say sponsorship, can you clarify for me a little bit what you mean by specifically by sponsorship? Somebody who champions your career, um, somebody who um, really is vested in your success and um, making sure that others see that you are a a strong candidate. So I think that's really critical for young Black lawyers. I mean, when I went through the initial articling interviews, when you say that there isn't a reflection, I remember going to the interviews and in every single interview, The only Black women I saw were Black women serving food at gatherings or um, Black women cleaning the premises. You know, that is 20 some years ago now. I think there have been some changes, obviously, but not enough. And so I think it it is critical to be able to reach out to people. One of the things I've learned along the way that I didn't have when I started was someone to call for advice and someone to say, how do I approach this interview? How do I, you know, best reflect my my skills and my cover letter? Just very basic things, very basic networking skills that, you know, we, I didn't have a network. I think that's often still the case, actually, in some cases. And so I think it is a really critical part of um, supporting young black lawyers and young black women lawyers and giving giving young black people a platform to show their talents. I didn't always have that. I you know I I ended up having some of that as I got older, but that was really quite a bit later in my career. Early on, I didn't have it. How do you get sponsored in the first place? I know in terms of your career, you've talked about 
the evolution of you as a person and your career in terms of having more self-confidence now than you ever had before compared to when you were a young lawyer. But in terms of this question of sponsorship, how, how does a young person get sponsored in the first place? I mean, I think you have to be willing to reach out to people. And part of part of that, when I talk about the insecurity, that's part of what I didn't have. I didn't know who to reach out to, but I didn't have the confidence to reach out. You know, I thought if I reached out that it was that I was going to be bothering people, people were too busy. But I think what I've learned is that um, in the black community specifically, there is a real willingness um, and generosity of time and a willingness to share knowledge, a willingness to support and to uplift. And so I would encourage, you know, younger black lawyers to who are starting out to reach out to others for support. There's a connection that you have. I talk about when I interviewed, uh, when I did my interview for the Black Legal Action Center, I was 49 when I did that interview. And it was the very first time in my career that I was interviewed by an all black panel. And when I think back, I had one interview in my entire career where there was a black woman on the panel, but outside of that, um, it was the only time and the difference that that made. So for, you know, it, 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 it allowed a comfort level um, that I've never experienced before in an interview, right? Um, because of the connection that I felt. Um, and so I, I, uh, I would encourage, I mean, you know, I don't know that everybody has that opportunity. It was an unusual, it's an unusual kind of circumstance because it's the Black Legal Action Center. But I would encourage young lawyers to not be shy about reaching out to more senior lawyers and to just kind of, you know, seek advice, ask advice, ask for support, ask for guidance. It's really a critical part of how we progress in the profession. So let's talk about that progression a little bit more. A report done in Ontario a few years ago talked about the instrumentalization of diversity. Firms using diversity policies to attract new hires and reassure clients that they're diverse, but then not really creating an inclusive and supportive culture that would move these diversity hires on the partnership track or leadership roles or to be a really true inclusive culture. Whose responsibility is it to change the culture of law firms and make the profession not only diverse, but foster belonging, inclusion, and truly equal opportunity? I think it's the responsibility of the partners in the firm. I think it's the responsibility of the law society. When firms talk about diversity, a firm may be diverse, but it may not have Black people in it. Right. And so um, I would recommend, I would suggest I'm a big proponent of understanding exactly what's happening in your firm, who's being hired, who's being retained, who's being promoted. And I think that it is incumbent if law firms and the legal community is genuine about wanting to change the position of black people in the profession wanting to improve it and wanting to retain and promote, then they have to look at the numbers, right? They have to look at what's actually happening through data collection, understanding what's happening, and make very conscious decisions about 
how they understand what policies are in place that may exclude the Black community, how they improve policies to reach out for interviews, what if they're using search teams at, at times, make it known to the search teams that they want not only diversity, but Black people to be brought forward to, be, to participate in interviews. That's a critical part of things as well. But I do think it's incumbent upon the, it has to come from, it can't be the responsibility of the Black articling students, right? And the junior Black associates to ensure that the firm is acting appropriately. There's a burden already on young Black people because you are already dealing with all sorts of anti-Black racism in the workplace. And I, I will say that that's just a given. And so to then have to be responsible for making sure that your firm is behaving in ways that doesn't, you know, foster kind of further anti-Black racism puts an additional burden that should not be there. And so I think it's the responsibility of partners in law firms and senior, you know, senior people in firms to make sure that there's a climate where if there are issues of discrimination happening, that there is an ability to deal with it and not just shut it down and create what becomes a toxic environment where someone can't talk about the discrimination that they're dealing with. Um, and I think that's really critical. I think it's not just critical in law firms. I think it's critical across the private sector, quite frankly, in government too. So what it really comes down to is that it's really toned from the top. People in positions of authority and power must lead and they must lead morally and they must make tough decisions and they must look inward in themselves to change and to lead change within our culture. So what role does institutional and systemic racism then play in the legal community? I think it plays a really significant and negative role in the legal community. When I graduated from law school, but didn't get an articling position, most of the people who didn't get articling positions were Black or racialized. The impact of that, I think, is still seen now. Um, because of the economy, I think that there are more people who are not racialized, who are not getting articling positions. They've actually had to deal with it now, right? Because it's impacting so many young people. But it's still, I still get calls all the time from people who are searching for articling, young Black people who are searching for articling positions, who have excellent grades, excellent, you know, extracurricular activities, and who are just not even selected for interviews. And it may, you know, it still happens. The individual is not called because they have a name that isn't a traditional name that you think of in law. And so even things, even small things like that play a role. Systemic racism in the legal profession is really significant. And part of, the, part of what I've always said is that I think the law society has a significant responsibility, actually, to deal with training in law school for lawyers and understanding of human rights and understanding of equity. Every law firm will tell you, you know, we have all, every time you raise issues of race, lawyers are the best suited to say, oh, but we have all these amazing policies. We have all these amazing policies. But when you look across the spectrum of lawyers who are senior in the profession, 
our numbers are really low, right? So that says something about how people, about how internally Black people are viewed, accepted, encouraged, promoted. So tell me about the Black Legal Action Center. What role does it play in challenging institutional racism and bias that upholds these structural inequalities that you were speaking about? So the Black Legal Action Center is a community legal aid clinic. Our mandate is to combat individual and systemic anti-Black racism across Ontario. It's an enormous mandate to meet that goal. We are funded for seven people. Our resources are extremely scarce to meet the goal. We are a hybrid clinic as well, which means that we provide both individual legal representation to low and no income Black people across Ontario, but we also do systemic work. We also do systemic advocacy, law reform, public legal education, community development. And so part of the way that we can deal with systemic discrimination is to educate both in and out of our community. We advocate and we often are engaged in advocacy campaigns and then also litigating where where necessary. You know, one example recently is the impact of COVID on the shelter system and on the homeless population. Well, we know because of statistics around poverty in Ontario, that the Black community is overly represented in the shelter system. So in coalition with others, we brought a legal challenge um, demanding that the city ensure uh, the safety of people in the shelter system, including a large component of which are Black and, in, Black and Indigenous people, um, making sure that the shelter, is in sh- the shelter system is ensuring that there are social distancing measures in place to ensure the safety of people who have to rely on the shelter system. We work with both our community about educating them around their rights. We also work with others who are responsible for upholding those rights uh, and challenge them where necessary uh, to make change. So when we're talking about change, CBA, Canadian Bar Association, is trying to change too. And one of the things that the CBA cares a lot about is access to justice. What do you think the key access to justice challenge is for the Black community? Most recently, the um, government implemented or is in the process of implementing Bill 161, which changes fundamentally um, the Legal Aid Services Act, which is the foundational um, legislation around legal aid, right? As a result of advocacy, actually, as a result of significant advocacy, well, they had removed the purpose of the Legal Aid Services Act, which was to provide access to justice for low-income individuals. And as a result of advocacy, they have included that purpose. But really, the, the, the goal of the legislation now is efficiency. And so what that does is for all of the vulnerable communities across the province who rely on legal aid, the purpose of legislation is quite significant. You know, I think that's one, certainly that's one very practical issue that comes to mind with respect to challenges around access to justice. But one of the one of the reasons that Black was created was because 
the black community, well, we actually, we conducted a needs assessment. The, the um, clinic prior to opening conducted a commissioned a needs assessment. And one of the things that came out of that needs assessment was uh, after speaking with black people across the province was that they felt they weren't being served by the legal community. And we see that at black all the time when people call us um, and need assistance, you know, they have a criminal lawyer who is just pleading them out and not looking at issues of anti-black racism that may have played a, a role in, um, you know, how they were charged and why they were charged. You know, all sorts of issues around how black people access lawyers. What, what the needs assessment showed was that they were not, the, often people were not comfortable working with lawyers. They wanted lawyers who understood their position around anti-Black racism, and they felt often that lawyers didn't understand. And if they raised issues of anti-Black racism, they were kind of, you know, brushed aside. And so those, I think, are significant issues around true justice for the Black community. So what can we do as a legal community to build a pipeline, an environment where more Black children not only see a future in law, but they're also very confident that they can make have a successful career and it's not going to be based on being held back because of skin color? One of the things that has happened at Black, when, when we opened our doors in March of 2019, uh, I thought that we would be inundated by calls around policing, right? And the impact of policing on the Black community. What happened actually is that almost 50% of our calls are related to education. And I think that um, success in our community, future success in our community, really depends on how the education system is managing um, the pervasive anti-Black racism that exists. And it exists from junior kindergarten, it exists in childcare centers, um, where child, where Black, young Black kids are excluded from a nursery um, because of stereotypical assumptions about behavior that don't apply to other kids. It exists in junior kindergarten where we have, you know, three-year-olds being suspended from school. I mean, what can a three-year-old do that warrants a suspension where six-year-olds are being handcuffed? There's an impact on our kids, a significant impact on our kids and how they feel and the confidence they have. And then they get to high school. There's hyper surveillance. There's extra discipline. There is criminalization. And all of this stuff, all of it, not just the criminalization, but all of the microaggressions that happen in school impact the confidence of our kids and how they view themselves moving forward in the future. And some of it has a very real impact on their possibility for future earnings, right? Like when kids are streamed, um, they don't have the opportunity to go to university or when they are put in a, a course that is you know, an apprenticeship course instead of an academic grade course, simply because of the color of their skin. And that is what we see at Black a lot. There's a huge impact moving forward. And those kids are off the bat 
precluded from going to law school absent doing a bunch of extra schooling. So I think that it starts, the support for our kids has to start, you know, I think the black community is extremely resilient and I am amazed by the parents in the black community and the caregivers um, who support the kids and fight for the kids all along the way. Um, but there also has to be responsibility on government to make accountable a system that damages our kids from an early age and sets them on a path that they probably should not be on. And I would also posit that part of that too is for everyone to understand their history. And by everyone, I don't just mean Black and Indigenous people to understand the legacy of slavery or the legacy of residential schools, I think it's also incumbent for everyone to understand history and not, um, you know, give it a gloss that really isn't accurate, which shapes how kids are educated in school and outcomes later in life. What's the best advice you've been given or what advice do you want to give to others? Always call out racism. Always. You can do it in the way that is most comfortable for you. Everybody has different ways of doing it, but always call it out. I've been speaking with Ruth Goba, Executive Director of the Black Legal Action Centre located in Toronto. We want to hear your stories about the changes you've seen in the legal profession or think the profession needs to make. Where do you see generational conflict and how do you suggest we overcome it? Let us know on Twitter at CBA underscore news, on Facebook and on Instagram at at Canadian Bar Association. You can hear this podcast and others on our CBA channel, The Every Lawyer, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe to receive notifications for new episodes and to hear us in French, listen to our Juris Branche podcast.